This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We have for you in this episode American Revolution Stories from a conference which is held every summer, sponsored by the Fort Plain Museum, and I had the uh, good fortune of being the announcer at uh, this event, uh, introducing the various speakers, and lo and behold, two of the speakers are previous guests on the Historian's Podcast, Nina Senkovich and Eric Schnitzer. Let's start with Eric. Eric Schnitzer has worked at Saratoga National Historical Park since 1997, becoming park ranger, military historian, and the year 2000. He's also an artist. Eric's drawings can be seen in various history books, including Don Haggist's Noble Volunteers, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution, and Dr. Karen Cook Bell's Running from Bondage, Enslaved Women, and Their Remarkable Fight for Freedom in Revolutionary America. Eric Schnitzer is also author of Don Troiani's Campaign to Saratoga, 1777, which is believed to be, or said to be, the turning point of the Revolutionary War. Eric Schnitzer is an artist, so is Don Troiani, and in this case, Eric is doing the text for Triani's uh, paintings, uh, paintings, artifacts, and historical narratives. Don Triani is known for his historical and military paintings. In a 2019 episode of Historian's Podcast, Eric Schnitzer explained how the book came to be. So I've been friends with Don Triani for a few decades now, and uh, he called me up oh, about two years ago and said that he wanted to put together a book on the uh, Northern Campaign, or if you will, Burgoyne Campaign or Saratoga Campaign of 1777. It goes by a few different names. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, he asked if I would want to be the author of it. And I was uh, very excited to, to, do, to take on that responsibility. Um, he would, of course, be the artist. He's a world-famous artist. He does amazing paintings of battle scenes and soldier figures. From He's, he's very you know, famous also in Civil War communities, but also the American War for Independence, which is his true love. And so he wanted to put this book together on the Saratoga Campaign of 1777. So um, I certainly agreed to it and uh, worked on writing uh, the text as well as all of the artifact and painting captions. Don, of course, did all of the uh, modern-day paintings, the artworks of the soldiers and of the followers, women uh, mm -hmm. and children who were with mm -hmm. the uh, campaigning military forces, and, of course, the battle scenes. And, uh, you know, we, we put our talents together and uh, came up with the book that way. Would you describe it as primarily a picture book, or is it a history book with some pictures? Oh, boy. <laughs> Oof, that's a good question. My goodness. Um, you know, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Originally, I was asked by the publisher to write a 40,000-word book. And there were going to be as many paintings and artifacts in the book as possible. So if it went that way as planned, it, I think, would have had uh, proportionally more pictures in it and less text. However, during the course of writing the book, 
I told the publisher, I can't do it in 40,000 words. I just can't in a way that would be satisfactory to me. And so I, I was nearing 80,000 words at that point. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and I told them and they said, you know what, that, that more is better. We like that. So please write more. And I said, okay. So I wrote and it ended up being uh, with the captions for all of the artifacts and paintings. It ended up being over 100,000 words, not counting the citations, mm-hmm. uh, which are, you know, the end notes, which are another, I don't know how many more uh, words than that. But um, I, I think that uh, there, it's, it's really a, a, just a great balance balance between mm-hmm. the two. Almost every page has a photograph of an artifact or two or three or or one of Don's paintings. Um, there's hardly a page that goes by without without having a nice visual that complements the text. Mm. Now, the, a lot of books have been written about, I believe, what are now what are properly called the battles of Saratoga, because there was more than one battle. What do you yes, see this book as adding to that uh, literature? Ah, what a great question. You know, there are so many books on the Northern Campaign of 1777, which culminated in the battles of Saratoga and the surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. Many books. I mean, there are, there are books, even others published within the past couple of years, including this year. Uh, there's there's at least one other book that was published. And, you know, it's because the battles of Saratoga and Burgoyne's surrender are so famous in American and world history. So it garners such interest, you know, that's why there's so many books. So indeed, why is this one different? Why does this book matter? What's the difference? Well, there, there are so many differences. Um, first of all, Don's paintings. Mm-hmm. Don's paintings are just sublime. He has, he's just a brilliant artist, but he's also a historian. And he marries the two together, the very right-brained and left-brained disciplines that he puts together, combines them. And so he not only is a great artist, which is very you know, right-brained kind of talent, but he uses his historian's mind, which is a more of a left-brained uh, capability, and he puts them together so his paintings are accurate. In other words, you can, you can write a book, you can go online and get freebie you know, artworks that you can populate in a book that you don't have to pay for. And they're, you know, woodcuts and prints and maybe old-timey pictures from the 1920s or 1950s or 1830s or whatever. And you can fill your book with them, but they're they're bonkers inaccurate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want your text to be accurate, which every author would, of course, say, yes, <laughs> accurate text, why would you want your pictures to be mm-hmm. any less so? Mm-hmm. And Don is such a keen... Uh, historian that he makes sure that the the figures, the uniforms, the accoutrements, the weapons, everything, the scene itself, the cultural and natural landscape is is accurate. So he'll go out there and he'll have a photograph made of the original spot where something happened, and then he'll of course make sure that it has the correct 1777 appearance, more trees, bigger trees, what have you, mm-hmm. and then he'll put in the figures wearing perfect reproduction uniforms made by the most brilliant uh, artisans and craftspeople around, uh, leather accoutrements and, and cloth uniforms, the weapons that you see in the paintings like swords and muskets, 
their originals. He actually models, when he has people model for him, he actually owns most of the things that you see in the painting insofar as the weapons. So those weapons are actually the real things that were used Mm -hmm. in those battles. It's pretty crazy. So his, his, his artwork is just amazing. Artifacts. We in this book have over 300 full-color artifacts and paintings and maps, uh, historic maps. And most of these artifacts have never been seen before. And they have an association with the American War for Independence or with the campaign specifically. So, for example, in the book, there's a wooden canteen that was worn by a Connecticut militia soldier in both battles of Saratoga. Uh, and that canteen is is in the book. A photograph of it's in the book. Same with muskets and buttons and you know f- remnants of flags and and, and uh, other artifacts. Mm-hmm. Also, um, as the author, I brought to bear the largest scope of uh, manuscript sources uh, available. The more so, if I may, than any author has ever conceived of doing. Now, any author is going to use journals and letters and memoirs written by the people at the time in, you know, in 1777, or in the case of memoirs, things that were written afterward. Um, Some authors might use pension depositions written by the veterans when they were applying for their pensions. They had to depose Mm -hmm. about their experiences. Um, That's more of a a new concept for authors to do, and I've I've done that very liberally. In fact, Don wanted me to do that, and I was very happy to do that. But I've also used things that are not traditionally used by historians, such as orderly books and uh, muster rolls inspection returns of the various units that fought in the battles. So, for example, uh, the American army that fought in, uh, I'm sorry, the American army that was present at Fort Ticonderoga and Mount Independence as the campaign was commencing in June of 1777, Mm -hmm. those American units were inspected by a guy uh, shortly before Burgoyne approached. And those inspections, which talked about the quality of the uniforms and the weapons and the quality of the soldiers and the officers, were sometimes very biting. And when you see how you know the American army evacuated and why the American army evacuated, and you realize the the kinds of American units that were up there and how they weren't necessarily the best, you know, ready to go into battle and to be relied upon, yeah, yeah and you can get mm-hmm. that from the inspection returns, you have a, a better sense about why things happened the way they did. And so those inspection returns are very, very helpful. And they have them for the British Army, too. In fact, you get the same thing where some of the inspection returns aren't exactly good. They're Mm -hmm. not very favorable to some of these British and German units. So you get a better understanding about the quality of the soldiers and officers fighting in the battles, the various battles, Hubberton, Bennington, the battles of Saratoga, the Battle of Fort Anne, etc. So... um, those are the kinds of sources that I've used uh, to, to, to formulate the uh, text. The big addition, I think, more than any other book, in fact, it is more than any other book, is the use of German sources. Mm-hmm. You know, authors have long had British and a lot of the American sources available, but not so much the German ones because they have to be translated. Sure. And getting, yeah. And well, getting and maybe I could just interject. I think Please. we've talked with you in the past uh, episode of historians about your interest in the German soldiers. 
Yes, sir. Oh, yes. I, I, I love them. Not because I have an ancestor that, as far as I know, who served, although I, you know, I am a first generation German-American. Um, and I, I, cannot, I cannot read the original German Handschrift. In fact, very few Germans uh, to this very day can re- read it because it's arcane uh, fraktur lettering and it's not easy for modern Germans to read. Most modern Germans can't read it. So uh, thankfully, uh, a lot, maybe I'd say most, most uh, solidly most of the original German sources have been translated by people like uh, Bruce Burgoyne, the late Bruce Burgoyne, and the late Helga Doblin, and Henry Retzer, and the late Tom Barker, uh, and uh, uh, Donald Landahl Schmidt, and other people, mm-hmm. uh, Klaus Reuter. I mean, these guys are, are and, and, uh, and uh, Helga are just fantastic with their translations. Eric Schnitzer and his wife Jenna and their two wacky cats live in an 18th century house in the White Creek Historic District near Bennington Battlefield State Historic Site, which is in New York. Also at the Fort Plain Museum's Conference on the American Revolution this summer was Nina Sankovich, an author, historian, and Vorhesis reader. She also was a guest on a previous Historian's podcast. Sankovich began her writing career after reading a book a day for one year and writing a memoir about the experience. Since then, she's written more books of nonfiction. One of Nina's interests is how the Lowell, Adams, Hancock, and Quincy families from Braintree, Massachusetts, fanned the flames of revolution. The title of Nina's talk this summer was The Abiding Quest of a Forgotten Hero, How Josiah Quincy Battled Overwhelming Odds to Bring Together the Northern and Southern Colonies in 1773. Fanning the flames of revolution and laying the groundwork for independence from England. And so that really got me thinking about how when we are taught American history in school, we really don't ponder this question of how did the colonists decide to rebel? Was that an easy decision to make or was it a hard one? And you know what? It was a very, very hard decision to make. I mean, you are raised to be loyal to King, loyal to, loyal to the British Constitution, And those two loyalties started to conflict because the British Constitution was very clear about what were the rights of the British citizens. And the way King and Parliament began to treat the colonies when they started to pay attention again to the colonies in the 1750s and 60s was was really an an abrogation of these rights that they had under the British, the whole system of the British Constitution, the laws, the common law, cases that had been decided um, but it wasn't easy to say, I'm going to go against everything I've been raised to be a good, loyal you know, citizen and, and start a new country. I mean, it was a huge decision to make. And so I wanted to really find a community to study in which there were both loyalists and rebels and where that decision cut across class lines, cut across gender lines, because I really wanted to understand How was it that someone would either decide to stay loyal or decide to rebel? Did one's gender have something to do with it? Did the social class in which you raised have something to do with it? Did your education level have something to do with it? And I found all of those factors in Braintree. I found that here was this little village 
yet there were loyalists there. And lo and behold, so many of the leaders of the American Revolution were all from this little village. And once I found that little town, I mean, I was just hooked. And I knew that I had to write about them. Um, and, and, and then the research uh, just, just took off. It was so fascinating. I got a fellowship from the Massachusetts Historical Society, which allowed me to just spend so much time going through their incredible archives. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and what I discovered was, was just fascinating. Mm. Now, did you find that there was something about the lives that your main characters, if you will, lived in Braintree that made many of the Braintree folks more prone to rebel? I definitely did find that. And that was an interesting mixture of sort of what, so you have these small villages that grow up with, with, you know, are really built on immigrants coming over from England. Why did they leave England in the first place? Because they wanted to try something new. They wanted to live life their own way. So they kind of had already this spirit of, I want to do things my way. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. I don't like whatever sort of oppression I feel I'm living under. Then you have their sort of future generations are kind of raised on this myth of why, you know, myth, but true. There's truth, there's truth in that myth um, of why their, their forebears came to America in the first place. Um, and you also have a, a congregationalist faith that has evolved um, since the 1630s into the into the 18th century has evolved into a more op- not open religion in terms of um, allowing lots of different sort of behaviors or anything like that, but open in terms of one's own responsibility to take care of one's own fate. So it used to be, you know, your fate was determined, God had it written in a book, you were done, predestination. But there was an opening up of that in the 18th century where colonists really began to feel, I am in control of my life, and I am, in, and I have a duty to my community that was very strongly instilled by their religion and by their forebears. This idea of duty to community. So I think something that really impressed me so much was how strong a sense of duty to community all of these different rebels had, and how they interpret that duty in a different way. But it all came down to what's good for the people I live with. How can I protect them? What can I do for them? And so um, it just seemed, yes, it was, it was natural mm-hmm. that in this place of, of sort of um, really brave people who had first settled there in the community, and I, and I have a whole chapter about a variety of different, very rebellious types who had lived in Braintree long before it was even called Braintree. Um, I think there was something, in, you know, just being raised in such a village and in such a church that allowed them to really... Um, you know, have the have the guts to rise up and, and do what they thought was mm-hmm. right. Now, your book begins with the funeral in 1744 of Reverend John Hancock, who I believe was the father of the John Hancock we know. So he also yeah. grew up in um, in Braintree, and his sermons were um, I don't know. Did they kind of point the way to this idea of having a different form of government? Well, his sermons definitely um, uh, were very strong on the theme of duty to community, but also um, the idea of liberty and freedom, that people have the, have the right to liberty. They have the right to pursue their dreams. 
and it is their responsibility and their duty to pursue their dreams and also on behalf of their community. And what is interesting is to see another thing that came up in my research was how often actually ministers' sermons played a role in um, sort of fomenting ideas of revolution, of self-determination, of independence. And although there were certainly ministers who preached, you know, loyalty to the king, loyalty to the king, there was such a strong voice in so many pulpits saying, you are... You are the one who must determine your fate. You are the one who must, um, you know, submit to your duty to God to do good for others. And, and, and so I found that very interesting and very surprising. I wasn't expecting that. And I do think that all of these rebels who I talk about in my book, they were raised on the sermons of Reverend Hancock. There is just no doubt in my mind that those sermons were embedded in their ideals of what they could do and what they should do. John Adams was one of the Braintree boys, if you if you will. His wife Abigail, I believe, came from a, a town near there. Is that right, Nina? Yes, uh, she grew up nearby in Weymouth, but she actually spent much of her childhood in Braintree, where her grandmother lived. And uh, she she writes in her you know in different letters of how it was her grandmother who was so important to her in terms of growing up and, and in terms of lessons that she learned. And she really preferred to be in Braintree. Um, although, of course, she loved her sisters who were in Weymouth, but she mm -hmm. just loved the freedom um, that her grandmother gave her. Her grandmother saw her as sort of a very um, lively, cultish woman who should be given free reign to be the woman uh, who she would become. And uh, and she certainly became a very strong, independent um woman who had a lot to say, and I loved reading all of the things that she had to say in mm. John Adams and her other friends. So um, she was it, a real heroine of mine as I wrote the book. Sure. And what was her maiden name? Smith. Smith, Abigail Smith. Smith. These are, let's say, John Adams, Abigail Adams, John Hancock. You know, they're, they're pretty much well known in the American history story. But you also write about another guy, another man, who I don't think is as well known. I just want to ask you about him. Um, and and your, uh, his name is Josiah Quincy Jr. Uh, who is he and what did he do for the revolutionary cause? Well, he really is a forgotten, hist uh, forgotten hero of the American Revolution. Um, he was a lawyer and a passionate lawyer and also what, what we would call, what they called that, a pamphleteer. He wrote... Um, articles for newspapers that were then put into pamphlets on different issues of the day. And he took issue very often <clears throat> with the way um, England was running its colonies in America. And he wrote very passionately about the duty of the colonists to stand up for their rights, to fight the oppressor, to be strong, to work for one's community. Um, and his writings were, were widely spread, very influential and they were important to the Sons of Liberty in Boston, um, started by, you know, led, led by Sam Adams there in Boston, because Josiah Quincy was able to bring in sort of the upper classes to the fight against the British. Um, and this was important so that you had a, a large range of people supporting the efforts to, against the oppressions of Britain. 
um, he also was very much a diplomat, and he went to the southern colonies to make sure they were on board with the northern colonies in terms of what mm-hmm. they wanted from Britain. And for a very long time, Josiah was not interested in independence. He really just wanted England to give back to the colonists the rights he felt were their, were their birthright, the rights under the British Constitution. He came to the idea of independence only after he lost complete hope um, in the goodness of king or a parliament. While he was traveling in the South, he, he, he had a, a very um, detailed travel journal in which he wrote extensively about the horrors of slavery. And he prophesied that slavery would be a big issue in the United States and would tear, of course, he didn't use the term United States, but he did talk about United Colonies and how slavery would really tear at the union of the colonies because it was such a contentious issue and, in his mind, was just so completely immoral it could not be countenanced. We hope that you'll be able to help us out uh, with our fun drive for 2023 uh, for the Historian's Podcast so we can continue providing uh, coverage of uh, Old Fort Johnson and Fort Ticonderoga and events like the Revolutionary War Conference sponsored by the Fort Plain Museum. You can give in two ways. You can donate online by going to our website, bobcudmore.com, and linking to the GoFundMe page. And it really is easy. I've done it myself. Or if you don't want to do that, you could write out a check and make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, then mail it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. And thank you to the good folks of the Fort Plain Museum, Brian Mack and Norm Bolin in particular, who organize this uh, conference every summer on the American Revolution. They had a whole bunch of uh, speakers at this uh, gathering. In fact, I had an opportunity to meet in person the state historian, Devin Lander, uh, who is uh, a, a guest on our show uh, about once a year, and what he's been talking about the past couple of years is the 250th anniversary of American independence, which is coming up in a few years, uh, but uh, all kinds of oh, uh, observances and so forth are, are going on about that right now. In fact, the Fort Plain Museum Conference has tacked on the word or the number 250, to its uh, uh, its conference title. I know I'm m- making a little noise here with the papers. The Fort Plain Museum presents the Revolutionary War Conference 250 in the Mohawk Valley. And the 250 will continue uh, next year. Uh, please uh, mark your calendars, if you will, uh, for June 9th of 2024. The Fort Plain Conference, 250 now as they call it, uh, this particular summer was uh, technically supervised, if you will, by a young man named Jason. And Jason was quite a celebrity because he had recently been on Jeopardy. He didn't win any money, as he said, but he certainly had his uh, 15 minutes of fame. Among the speakers at the conference this summer was Sergio Villasencio, 
about a lot of complicated words here. His talk was about St. Eustatius. What he really had talked about was St. Eustatius Island, which is frequently just called Eustatius. It's a small Caribbean island. And what could it have had to do with the American Revolution? Well, toward the end of the war, the British and the French engaged in a naval battle there, the end of the Revolutionary War. And the British won. And this gave the the Britons uh, kind of hope that they were going to uh, pull the problems of, of the American Revolution. Uh, they would be able to surmount them. But that wasn't to be the case. And then we had the Battle of uh, Yorktown and then eventually the Treaty of Paris and the United States uh, were, was created and became an independent country. So once again, thanks to Brian Mack and Norm Bolin and all the people at the Fort Plain conference held every summer on the American Revolution. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.